0: Shalom, friends. Hey, everybody. I hope you're all well and full of joy today. This is Timothy. Welcome back to Access. I'd like to take a moment to just offer up some praise and thanksgiving to God. You know, I'm I'm thankful for this gift of life that he gives us every day, um, that I get to wake up and, and take that first deep, intentional breath. It reminds me that God's not done with me yet, that there's still lessons that I have to learn, and and there's still good works that he has prepared for me to do. Now, I'm going to get a little personal um, and share a short story with you. This week marks seven years since my heart surgery. I took some time this week to reflect on the whole experience, and I guess I never really appreciated the severity of my condition at the time. I remember like it was yesterday. Uh, It was my mom's birthday, um, and we were rushing to collect our three babies uh, to go meet the rest of the family at the restaurant. And my wife, Beverly, she was inside, still packing up the diaper bag. And and I was out there in the cold, uh, trying to put the car seats in the van. I was heading back into the house to to load up the babies. And I was panting. I was short of breath. And I could feel my heartbeat pounding in my head. And I, I thought it was just a cold or something. But then my throat and my neck, it felt like somebody was strangling me. Now, I knew Beverly was just inside, and I couldn't call out for help. I made it to the garage door leading into the house and and I started to clench my chest and my whole body seized up and everything just went black. And I collapsed right there on the steps of the garage doorway. I remember pleading with God in my mind and in my spirit. I was just like, please, Lord, not now, not like this. Please help me, save me. I was thinking of my wife and my three sons who were just inside. And I didn't want them finding me like that. You know, a million thoughts were racing through my mind and all the prayers in my spirit were just crying out to God in that moment. All of a sudden, I felt like my body was released from that tight squeeze and I got up and everything felt normal, like nothing just happened, right? And I calmly told Beverly, hey, the car's ready. Uh, we we got to get going. They're waiting for us at the restaurant. So I picked up my kids one by one and, and got them strapped in their car seats and we went to the restaurant, had a nice meal, and, you know, didn't tell anybody about what happened. The very next day was Connections Ministry's 13th anniversary. I was singing with the praise team and facilitated the study, and we enjoyed open gym night, socials. It was a full-day affair. I remember the study was called Dwell, and the uh, lessons from that study, they really helped carry me through the next couple weeks. And once again, I didn't tell anybody what had happened. A couple days later, I went into work at the clinic. And the doctor that works with us, um, she asked me how I was doing and noticed that my color didn't look too well. Since she asked, I, I told her what happened. She referred me to a cardiologist and two days later, I drove myself, got a stress test done. I lasted no more than two minutes on the treadmill before the doctor yanked me off and slammed me onto the table and she needed to see what was going on in my heart. So obviously she saw something. And I wasn't allowed to leave until somebody came to drive me straight to the emergency room. Um, So I called my good friend, Aaron, who graciously dropped everything and brought me to the hospital. And he waited there with me until my dad arrived. Thank God for good friends, eh? Uh, They kept me in the ER overnight. And while I was sleeping, the nurses, they were like shaking me awake. And I was like, why are you waking me up? You know, this is the best sleep I've had in years. Um... It turns out my oxygen was down to like 60%, and apparently that's not good. So the next day, they had me scheduled for an angiogram, and I was the last patient of the day, and I was this young guy, 34 years old, and they probably thought that it wasn't going to be anything big. The doctor went in, and with all these fancy tools, and he did his thing, capturing images of my heart. I remember the whole room just getting really quiet, and he called out and He said, hey, let's go back and get um, better images of this. A few moments later, he informed me that he had found some blockages to my heart. I said, okay, great. He goes, do you understand what that means? You have four blockages. It means you're going to need coronary bypass surgery. I gave him a thumbs up and said, great, cool. (laughs) Um, How soon could I have that done? They kept me in the hospital for almost another week or so before transferring me to the uh, hospital where the surgery was gonna be done. And I had my own little corner there, uh, my own little corner room and a bathroom and in the CCU. And I had this great view and excellent gourmet meals, just no limit to my visitors. It was great. It was like this free vacation. I was just grateful that they found the problem and that it could be fixed. I remember that first Sabbath in the hospital, the sun was shining into my room and I was able to spend some moments of just pouring out my thoughtful praise and thanksgiving to God as I reflected on those times that he saved me, you know, and all the lessons that he taught me on the way and, and for the opportunities that he'd given me to experience his grace in such tremendous ways. And there that Sabbath, he was teaching me total surrender and submission to him to trust him completely for everything that the future might bring. Now, two days later, as they were strapping me in on that gurney to uh, transfer me to the other hospital, I got a phone call. It was my wife. And she told me that her doctor had informed her that she had a large brain tumor and would be needing surgery. I hung up that phone and, and I had to go. They, they had to bring me to the other hospital. And as the paramedics wheeled me outside, I asked them to just give me a couple minutes before putting me into the ambulance. I took a breath of fresh air and and let the sun kiss my skin. I spoke to God and knew that my faith was being tested in that moment. And all I could do in my helpless state was to trust Him completely. In that moment, I knew His peace. Just this week, I had asked my dad, uh, who is a vascular and thoracic surgeon, So how bad was my situation really? Uh, Why were all the doctors and the nurses in such a panic? He told me that I belonged to this um, 0.3% group of people that go through this sort of procedure. Um, This 0.3% group uh, being under the age of 35. And the blockages that they found, there were four of them. Um, One at 100%, two blocked at 95%, and one at 75% blocked. And he told me that my heart was functioning at only 10 to 15% capacity. And I never really realized just how far gone I was. And that's why I'm praising God again today. Friends, no matter how far gone we are, no matter how impossible our situations may seem, nothing is impossible for God. Thank you so much for listening to this little bit of my story. Our study today is called Far Gone. Now if you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you will find all our studies there under the Files tab. Now let's get started. Far gone. Today my wife Beverly will be reading Genesis chapter 5 and 6 from the Complete Jewish Bible.
1: Here is the genealogy of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, he blessed them and called them Adam on the day they were created. After Adam lived a hundred thirty years, he fathered his son like himself and named him Shet. After Shet was born, Adam lived another eight hundred years and had both sons and daughters. In all, Adam lived nine hundred thirty years and then he died. Shet lived a hundred five years and fathered Enosh. After Enosh was born, Shet lived another eight hundred seven years and had sons and daughters. In all, Shet lived 912 years, then he died. Enosh lived 90 years and fathered Kenan. After Kenan was born, Enosh lived another 815 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Enosh lived 905 years, then he died. Kenan lived 70 years and fathered Mahalalel. After Mahalalel was born, Kenan lived another 840 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Kenan lived 910 years, then he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and fathered Yerid. After Yared was born, Mahalalel lived another 830 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Mahalalel lived 895 years, then he died. Yered lived 162 years and fathered Hanuk. After Hanuk was born, Yared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Yerid lived 962 years, then he died. Hanuk lived 65 years and fathered Metushalak, After Metushalak was born, Hanuk walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Hanuk lived 365 years. Hanuk walked with God, and then he wasn't there, because God took him. Metushalak lived 187 years and fathered Lemech. After Lemech was born, Metushalak lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Metushalak lived 969 years, then he died. Lemech lived 182 years and fathered a son, whom he called Noach. For he said, This one will comfort us in our labor, in the hard work we do with our hands, from the ground that Adonai cursed. After Noach was born, Lemech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. In all, Lemech lived 777 years. Then he died. Noach was 500 years old, and Noach fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 6 In time, when men began to multiply on earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Adonai said, My spirit will not live in human beings forever, for they too are flesh, therefore their lifespan is to be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the ancient heroes, men of renown. Adonai saw that the people on earth were very wicked, that all the imaginings of their hearts were always of evil only. Adonai regretted that he had made humankind on the earth. It grieved his heart. Adonai said, I will wipe out humankind whom I have created from the whole earth, and not only human beings, but animals, creeping things, and birds in the air, for I regret that I ever made them. But Noah found grace in the sight of Adonai. Here is the history of Noah. In his generation, Noach was a man righteous and wholehearted. Noach walked with God. Noach fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and yes, it was corrupt, for all living beings had corrupted their ways on the earth. God said to Noach, The end of all living beings has come before me, for because of them the earth is filled with violence. I will destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. You are to make the ark with rooms and cover it with pitch both outside and inside. Here is how you are to build it. The length of the ark is to be 450 feet, its width 75 feet, and its height 45 feet. You are to make an opening for daylight in the ark 18 inches below its roof. Put a door in its side, and build it with lower, second, and third decks. Then I myself will bring the flood of water over the earth to destroy from under heaven every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will be destroyed. But I will establish my covenant with you. You will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. From everything living, from each kind of living being, you are to bring two into the ark to keep them alive with you. They are to be male and female. Of each kind of bird, each kind of livestock, and each kind of animal creeping on the ground, two are to come to you, so that they can be kept alive. Also take from all the kinds of food that are eaten, and collect it for yourself. It is to be food for you and for them. This is what Noah did. He did all that God ordered him to do.
0: Now how exciting was chapter 5, this genealogy of Adam's family, all the way from Adam going down eight more generations to Noah, And not to mention all that detail of how old they were when they gave birth to the next son on the list and how long they lived after that. I mean, this is just really good record keeping. But why was it important to keep these records? People in ancient Israel placed great importance on who their families' ancestors were. And these family lists, they show where certain families come from and, and why they were important. The genealogies in the Bible are usually traced and tracked through the the head of the male head of the family. So women are rarely mentioned unless they have a very significant role in the story. If you were with us during our last study, you'll remember that we finished off chapter four of Genesis looking at Cain's descendants, and this represented the line of evil. Now, some of the names from Cain's descendants are similar to the names of Shet's descendants that we read of in chapter 5. And yeah, it could get a little confusing at times. But I'd like to encourage you not to just brush over these genealogies when you see them. When you have time, actually sit down and look at the line. I mean, this is a family story, a family line. And it goes all the way from Adam and down to the promised seed that was spoken of, that God spoke of in Genesis chapter 3.15. Remember where we got that peak of God's plan to restore humanity to himself? The seed of Havah? This is Messiah Yeshua, commonly called Jesus the Christ. The story throughout the scriptures is the story of the line of Yeshua. When I was studying chapter 5, I actually took out my calculator, and I just wanted to see how long did Adam live to see his line, you know? Like, he was this great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, you know, um, seven generations down. Uh, He was still alive when Noach's father, Lamech, was born, Lamech was 61 years old when Adam finally passed away, and they likely knew each other, but there was no opportunity for Adam to have ever met Noah. Notice the last verse of the chapter where it says Noah was 500 years old when he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now we could easily assume that he probably had other children prior to this, but the scripture doesn't tell us explicitly. I have a hard time believing that these were his first children at 500 years old. And we continue on to chapter 6 where we see that eventually in time men start to multiply and fill the earth some more and to them are born daughters. And it talks about the sons of God that find the, the daughters of men attractive and they want to take them as their wives. But who are these sons of God exactly? Many Bible scholars have, have taken this to mean fallen angels, that the sons of God are fallen angels. And um, there's a word that's brought up here in verse 4, um, the Nephilim. It says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. Now, Nephilim comes from the Hebrew root word, nephal which means to fall of a violent death or to fall away or to fail. So you could see where this understanding that the Nephilim were possibly fallen angels and these sons of God were fallen angels. And others have come to the conclusion that the sons of God was simply a designation that referred to the line of Sheth, the faithful and godly men living on the mountain, and uh, the daughters of men were representative of the line of Cain, uh, those who fell away from God. But whether the Nephilim were the result of mixing two lines of humans, or mixing of humans with these fallen spiritual beings, the result of all this was a race of people that were tormenting their culture and, and dominating at will. Apparently, the Nephilim were bigger, stronger, and smarter, and they were subjects of many ancient pagan myths. And no matter whether their existence came from the fallen sons of God, the benign Elohim, or from fallen man, the true source of their power was, was just pure evil. And that's the important thing to remember here, that the Nephilim were literal and real. And eventually, they came to represent a type, So before the Flood, they were likely a very real race of people, maybe a few generations even. Uh, But after the Flood, when they no longer existed, the Nephilim was a name that was used for other peoples with very similar attributes. Perhaps you could think of a few people throughout history. In the Bible, there was Goliath. He was a giant. He was bigger. He was a terrorizer, you know. And then you get those really wicked guys like like Hitler. And they're all operating from the same sort of evil, wicked spirit as the Nephilim. Speaking of spirit, in verse 3, God talks about his spirit. He said that his spirit would not strive with man forever and their lifespan will be 120 years. I have to point out something very important here when we talk about God's spirit. Now, God is spirit, and so he's essentially speaking of himself when he speaks of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, or the Ruach HaKodesh, is the attribute of God that we call spirit. In Hebrew, Ruach, spirit, is a means that God uses to deal between himself and man. So here, God's spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, was striving to call man to repentance and righteousness through the preaching of Hanoch and Noah. And this 120 years, this was a span of time until the flood, in which man was given the opportunity to respond to the warning that God's Spirit would not always be patient with them. Can you imagine God, our loving Father, running out of patience? Well, that's exactly what we see going on here in verses five through seven, where the people on earth were very wicked, that all the imaginings of their hearts were always of evil only. And then we see that Adonai regretted that he had made humankind on earth and that it grieved his heart. The Hebrew word used here for imaginings is yetzer. And the yetzer of their hearts was always evil, raw. So the Yetzir Hara are the evil inclinations of man that drove them to this place of becoming so wicked. And Adonai regretted. And the word here is Naham. And Naham means bitter regret. Literally, it means that God repented that he had created mankind. And it grieved his heart. The word for grieve here in Hebrew is Atzab. And Sab means pained or vexed. He was annoyed and angered that he had created mankind on earth. So God promised total destruction when his patience finally ran out. But, verse 8, Noah found grace in the sight of Adonai. Noah was a man righteous and wholehearted, and Noah walked with God. The word for righteous is sadik and wholehearted is tamim so noah was sadiq and tamim in the sight of god noah was righteous because of his own merit or his good works it was god that viewed him as sadiq because he believed in god as creator as sovereign and as the only savior from sin so noah found grace for himself why because he humbled himself And he sought it out. Friends, that's a very important lesson that we need to learn here. Okay, we can't make ourselves righteous by all the good that we do. It's only God that gets to say who's righteous. As we continue on in verse 11, we read that the earth was corrupt and filled with violence because of all living beings, the basar. Now basar means flesh. So this applies not just to Adam, mankind, but it applies to the animal kingdom as well. So all flesh was the reason that the earth was filled with hamas, this violence, this wrong and cruelty and this injustice. The world was filled with injustice because of all the flesh, which God was planning to destroy along with the rest of the earth. The Hebrew word shechat is used here for both corrupt and destroy, It means to ruin or pervert or to corrupt morally. So the passage could actually read, the earth was shechat, so God was going to shechat all the living beings that perverted his design, that corrupted, that were morally corrupted along with the earth. At this part of the story, I had been asking myself, how did it get this bad? Let's go back and look at the nephilim, right? The nephilim were there, and they were desiring the the daughters that the daughters of man that were attractive, right? This is the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They wanted to dominate, right? So all these things were at play again, and the enemy was up to his old tricks. That evil spirit that plays on man's evil inclinations, the yetzer hara. It was totally at work here. Consider what it says in James 1 verses 14 to 15. Each person is being tempted whenever he's dragged off and enticed by the bait of his own desire. Then having conceived, the desire gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Like, doesn't that just sound like the Nephilim? And the Nephilim were dominating this culture. They had perverted the minds of all men. And here we have the seed of these fallen rejecters of God, deceitful and destructive, that had dominated the world. And God was going to destroy them. But here, destroy, it didn't mean annihilation of the earth, but it referred to a flood judgment. Remember, the earth was filled with violence, hamas, with injustice, and God brings judgment to injustice. Who's to blame for filling the earth with all this injustice? It's easy for us to point the finger and say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. But notice that God did not blame the devil. He blamed all living things. He blamed mankind and the animals, all the flesh. So they are the ones receiving the judgment, judgment by the flood. But there's still the question, why doesn't God blame the devil? I mean, who causes evil then? Where does evil come from? I'm going to ask Bev to read Isaiah 45, verse 7 here.
1: I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I am Hashem. That doeth all these things.
0: This verse here says bluntly that the Lord creates evil. I mean, is that possible? Now there are four key Hebrew words here in this verse: or, choshek, shalom, and ra. So by mixing the Hebrew in with the English words, the verse reads: I form the or and create choshek. I make shalom and create ra. Now, we've studied the words or and choshek, so we know that they denote the opposite categories of spiritual nature, good and evil. Shalom, in its very nature, is describing a sense of well-being and peace, good, godliness, prosperity, and, and grace that comes from the hand of God. It's a divine source that produces shalom. The Hebrew word ra, has a similar but opposite sense. So ra means evil or bad. This verse and and many others reflect the principle of opposites as it tells us that if God forms light, then darkness is also created. And if, if the Lord creates shalom, then evil is also created. So God is behind it all. He controls it all. And he uses all of it for his divine purposes. When God designed our universe as a universe of opposites, evil came into existence as good's natural opposite. Now, this is a key concept in our lesson here. God did not create evil in the sense that he manufactured evil. He didn't turn to his right and create a mound of good and then turn to his left and create this mound of evil. Rather, evil was the result of his creating good. So when he placed that spirit of good in our four-dimensional universe that requires opposites, the spirit of evil came into existence as well. It may be easier to think about it this way. Evil is everything that God does not command or instruct. Evil is the opposite of what God calls good. Allow me to share this analogy. Imagine that you go into a room, and you turn on a light. When you flip that switch, electricity flows to a filament in the light bulb, and it glows. And by that action, you have added light to the room. But when you turn the switch off, and the room goes dark, you did not add darkness to the room. The light bulb it, it didn't reverse itself and emit darkness to the room, or suck the light out of it. No, light was present. When the light is absent, we need a name for that condition, darkness. So darkness is not something that's made, it's just the absence of light. In the same way, evil is simply the absence of good. So here in this life where opposites are so real, we have good and evil. And when God created man, he gave us wills. There was never a time that we didn't have wills. If humans didn't have wills, we'd simply be these like flesh-and-blood robots that are pre-programmed with a certain behavior pattern, like literal slaves to our Creator. So what's the purpose and the use of a will? I mean, a will enables a person to make choices of morality. And the ability to have choice was first created when God designed a universe in which the overriding law is that everything has an opposite. So that's the very nature of choice. Your will, it's not like a matter of selecting preferences. It's not that part of man that's like, oh, do I like strawberries or bananas or chocolate over vanilla or or do I like blue over red? Like that's preference. But instead, our wills, they're directed by the spirit which God put in us from not from our universe, um, it could be thought of as like a fifth dimension that exists within our universe. So God brought the spirit from somewhere else and he put it into us. So our wills directed by the spirit are, it's that part of us that makes moral choices, choices of the conscience. And more than anything else, our wills, that give us the choice to love God or not to love God. And this is expressed by our choosing the ways of God or rejecting them. So let's get back here to Genesis 6.13 and Noah to apply what we've learned here. Now, God didn't blame Satan for ruining the earth with evil. He blamed men and all the living creatures. Now, were these men that he blamed like 100% evil? No. Uh, No more than Noah and his sons were 100% good. Uh, this is a good way to look at our condition. We have good in us, good in that sense of Yetzir HaTov, the good inclination. But without God's spirit in us, the Ruach HaKodesh, to direct the use of that good, then even our motives will be impure and wrong, and our application would be misdirected. And whatever good we possess, it could easily be turned into evil. Now, how does that happen? How do we get so far gone? It's when we use our good intentions in a matter that's not God's will. And that which is not God's will is, by definition, evil. Moving on to verse 14, we see an interesting God principle that's set down in in the detailed instructions that he gave to Noah for the ark. And all Noah had to do was to accept God's means of salvation for him and his family— by following God's prescription exactly. And here we see that even salvation is, in a way, a cooperative effort between mankind and God. So God's role is to provide salvation, and mankind's role is to accept it by means of moral choice of our will. But as much as salvation is is by grace, there are obligations that we have to God, and some of those might involve action on our part. Noach and his family had to begin by believing what God told them. Uh, first, that mankind was wicked and God would soon destroy them. Second, that there was a way to escape the destruction. Third, that means of escape was designed by the Lord and only that means was available. Fourth, Noah would have to act in order for his deliverance to come about. So it took great faith on Noah's part to take God at his word when, you know, the, the current circumstances, they didn't seem to indicate that, you know, such a thing could possibly happen. And with that great faith, Noah listens to God about how to build this ark. In Hebrew, the ark is called a teva. It's the, it's the same term that's used for the basket that baby Moses is going to be placed in centuries later. And a teva is a box-like craft that's not the same thing as a boat or a ship. It's simply this device that floats, rudderless, you know, without a crew to operate it. And the idea is that a teva is guided only by God's hand. And mankind? Well, they're just a passenger. So it's in this teva, this ark of salvation, that God protects the godly from his own wrath and divine judgment. In contrast with the rest of the created order, which God was to destroy, Noah and his family were not only to be preserved, but they were to enjoy the provision and protection of a covenant relationship with God. And here in Genesis 6 17, this is the very first mention of covenant in Scripture. Notice in verse 18 that four men with their wives were to enter the ark. And this was a sum total of humanity that would be saved. But I will establish my covenant with you. You will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. The number of humans who had been elected and set apart to restart life on the planet totaled eight. Now eight is a number of great significance in the scriptures. Eight is the number of redemption, and will remain so throughout the entire Bible. Closing off chapter 6, we see Noah receiving the last few bits of instruction. He was to bring from every, everything living, from all the animals. Uh, he was supposed to keep them alive with him on the boat, and just bring a couple of them, you know, a male and a female. And he was to bring all kinds of food that could be eaten and collected for himself and his family and the animals. And verse 22 reads, this is what Noah did. He did all that God ordered him to do. Friends, this story of Noah is just packed with so many lessons that God wants to teach us. One lesson that I learned from this study is that we are never too far gone and that God is patient with us, and he's waiting for us to repent. God wants his people to be righteous. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. I'd like to encourage you to continue studying along with your own access groups. Get a couple friends together, open up God's Word, and learn all the lessons that he's teaching us. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen.